Okay, let's begin with prayer this evening. Thanks. Father, thank you for this time that we can have together. Thank you, Lord, that you're doing a work in all of our lives by your Holy Spirit. Again, I, I acknowledge your sovereignty, God, in, in every detail, your providence that you've brought each person to this place at this moment in time in history, that you have a plan for us. Lord, we just acknowledge you in that. We, we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Last time we covered the Trinitarian expressions of love. God made a promise. The Son, in turn, gives the kingdom and the redeemed humanity back to the Father as an expression of his love for the Father. And God's purpose, therefore, in saving you is so that you might praise the Son forever. Pretty awesome concepts. This next slide is, is called the chain of the plan of God. If you consider, you know, a lot of people haven't thought of how, how does it go? What are the steps that might lead to being justified, being saved, and then eventually glorified with God in heaven? Well, these are the steps. Omniscience, this is obviously in God's plan. Eternal decree, God speaks it out, he he sets it where he wants it, he chooses who he wants to, but through election, and that brings foreknowledge, and of course then that's also in there is that person is predestined, called, justified, and glorified, like it says in uh, Romans uh, 6, I believe, 8, what, 8, thank you. Um, moving into some other background material for the direction that God chose. And we begin tonight with angels. God chose angels, 1 Timothy 5.21. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of his chosen angels. His chosen angels. Never noticed that before, did you? to maintain these principles without bias, doing nothing in a spirit of partiality. The point here is God chose. Abraham, Nehemiah 9.7, you are the Lord God who chose Abraham and brought him out from the Ur of the Chaldees and gave him the name Abraham. Abram and then Abraham, sorry. He chose Israel, Ezekiel 25. And I say to them, thus says the Lord God, on the day when I chose Israel and swore to the descendants of the house of Jacob and made myself known to them in the land of Egypt when I swore to them saying, I am the Lord your God. Psalm 132, 13, for the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his habitation. He chose Isaac, Genesis 21, 12. But God said to Abraham, do not be distressed because of the lad and your maid. Whatever Sarah tells you, listen to her, for through Isaac your descendants will be named. God chose Jacob, not Romans 9, 13. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. So these are... 
passages where God chose. God chose Jacob. He loved. Zerubbabel. That's a mouthful. Haggai 2.23. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, my servant, declares the Lord, and I will make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. Jesus Christ, Isaiah 42.1, Behold my servant whom I, whom I uphold, my chosen one, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He chose the disciples. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give to you. Chose Paul. Isn't this interesting? All these various ones that God chose. That's a purpose of bringing all these various ones. It seems almost repetitive. God chose this one and this one and this one and that group and these, this people and that, that one. It's repetitive, but it gets across the point that God chooses that's, that's where we're going with this. God does the choosing. He chose Paul, Galatians 1.15. But when God, who had set me apart even from my mother's womb and called me through his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood. In reality, Everything God does, he has elected to do. We don't think of God in those terms a lot of times. We, think of the, we don't think of the scriptures in those terms, that God is choosing exactly what he wants to. Even though we make choices every day in our lives, we don't somehow attribute that to God. That's the point of, this, of these verses, this concept. The glory of God, from the beginning to the end, the driving impulse of God's heart is to be praised for his glory. From creation to judgment, his allegiance is to himself. His unwavering purpose in all he does is to exalt the honor of his name. He is infinitely jealous for his reputation. Isaiah forty-eight eleven, for my own sake, for my own sake, I will act. For how can my name be profaned? And my glory I will not give to another. Notice the repetition in Isaiah 48 is there for significance to add emphasis. It's repeated the same phrase two times in a row. For my own sake. For my own sake. Number five, God loves himself more than he loves me. Ooh, wow. Yes, God is a praise hog, if you call it that. That's a uh, maybe today's vernacular. <clears throat> a man's life is not greater than the glory of God. Think about that. A man's life is not greater than the glory of God. He does what he does for his glory. That's why we began the, the sessions with 
his glory and his sovereignty. Going to keep that theme running throughout, throughout this whole presentation that this is all for his glory and for no other purpose but his glory. So when God chooses or does not choose a man for whatever reason, it's also for his glory. That's a struggle sometimes for people to understand that. Go ahead. Go ahead. Let's see. We got a got a, wait. Pete. We got a microphone. Hang on. Okay. My comment is always that's not fair. Yeah. No, you're right, it's not. God, God doesn't operate on a fair, fair um, premise or foundation. He chooses who he chooses for whatever reason he deems best. And that's, that's, a, that's a struggle that most non-believers, Armenians, a lot, um, the, sometimes the church at large around the world, would say, God just can't do that. It's not fair. But God doesn't operate on a fair basis. Here's a passage from Revelation that, okay, that would indicate God does things for his own glory. The lamb who was slain is worthy to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. So in heaven will be singing about the lamb who was slain so that God had a plan of salvation that included the death of Christ is something we'll be singing throughout eternity and it's about amen. God's glory amen that was Revelation chapter 5 verse 12 I can add that to my uh, list for, for God's glory. Is it wrong for God to want to be glorified? Maybe it's a silly question, but then again, when you think about it, some people might ask that. God has a passion for his glory. Bob just read the verse from Revelation about his glory. We've looked at many other verses already about his glory. He loves perfection and it being displayed. Do you love perfection? Do you love to see it displayed? Probably not like God does, but God loves perfection. He can't stand, of course, we know he can't stand sin. His, his uh, standard is perfection. And of course, he wants us to, to meet that standard we can never meet it, and of course that's why he, he, he allows grace and gives us the grace that we need each, each day. Number two, three things we do with perfection, display it, praise it, or enjoy it. Okay. From the Westminster Confession, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. 
some might ask, who are the Westminster Confession of Faith? Just real briefly, they're <clears throat> reformed group drawn up by the 1646 Westminster Assembly as a part of the Westminster Standards to be a confession of the Church of England. It became and remains the subordinate standard, quote-unquote, of doctrine in the Church of Scotland and has been influential with Presbyterian churches worldwide. And on it goes. But there have been a, a standard of, of rock-solid uh, foundation. A chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. We cannot add to God's glory. We can only magnify it. Intrinsically, God has glory. Like the sun has light, the sky has blue. I like this one. And water has wet. It kind of puts it in a, in a human perspective. God's glory is intrinsic. Compared to God, anything I am is so far inferior to what God is like that to glorify myself is to be self-centered, which is a sin. It is undeserved glory. Man knows down deep that self-centeredness is wrong. A self-centered, self-glorifying person is blind and self-deceived. This is where a lot of people would like to say, I chose God. And then they are the ones that receive something of the credit for being able to choose God, and therefore they are considered saved. But when you look at the whole picture of the glory of God, and you say, man knows down deep that self-centeredness is wrong, then you start to see how it really doesn't glorify God to, for man to choose himself. Now, we'll talk later and see some perplexing looks that we are dead in our trans, transgressions and sins. We cannot respond to God until God then makes us alive. Once he makes us alive, then what do we do? Then we choose him. So yes, there is a point at which we choose God. But just to be clear, there's a difference between choosing God after he in, uh, makes us alive versus choosing God when we're dead in our transgressions and sin. But I'm getting ahead of myself. We'll look at that a little bit more tonight. So maybe that puts a little bit more balance into it. Um, number five, God, seeking to glorify himself, is deserved glory. He is the highest, most high, and absolutely most perfect being in the universe. His glory is deserving of being magnified. Concepts that we don't normally think about. That's why I want you to put on your thinking caps and, and do this. We've already looked at the plan of God. I want to add one other little uh, color to this scenario. If you can imagine a whiteboard, we don't have one in the room, but you know what a whiteboard is, 
and it's pure white. There's no marks on it at all. It's just pure virgin white. And if that were to represent God's glory, it looks all perfectly perfect white. If you were to take a marker with the finest dot or you know point on it and put a black mark on that whiteboard anywhere you want to, representing sin, okay, the God's glory and sin, all of a sudden that black dot becomes a focus of attention and it enlightens the whole whiteboard to demonstrate the greater effect that how white the whiteboard is and how black that little dot of sin would be. If you get the picture of the illustration I'm trying to make, I think it makes it really uh, more clear in our minds that without the, the dot of sin, God's glory would not be as magnified as one with sin in it. God's divine plan, right from the top line there to the praise of his glory, Ephesians 1, 6, 12, and 14, and according to his good pleasure. As you can see, we, we have equal, equal parts of God's glory, equal part of God's God's uh, character in electing some and passing by others. God's nature is still sovereign, veracity, immutable, eternal, will, omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent, spiritually, life, wisdom, faithful, goodness, patient. That's part of who God is in whatever he decides to do. But he also chooses to elect some with grace, mercy, and love, and he passes by others with justice, holiness, and righteousness, and that's still part of who God's character is. How could God be all of that or both of that and not choose some. That's what we'll look at. The inability of spiritually dead men. Man is dead spiritually in his sin. Ephesians 2, 1 through 5. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. For but God... Those two words in blue are, are really key here. Extremely important. But God, being rich in mercy, 
because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive. Together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. So these, these five verses sum up the, the inability of a dead man to, to respond to God until he chooses us or those that he chose. Colossians 2.13, When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive. You know, we read these things in our, these verses in our Bibles through the years, and it's like, yeah, we read them, and yeah, it sounds great, but then you look at it from this perspective, and it's like, this is, this is powerful stuff. He made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions. Man is not sick. He is not ailing. He is dead. This goes to the, to the person that thinks that they can choose God without God choosing them. And they may be believers, but they don't understand this part of it, that God chose them first before they chose God. It was my will, they might say, that... I chose God. It's my free will that chose God. And yes, we do have choices that we talked about earlier. But this is the crux of the issue. Man is not sick. He is not ailing. He is dead. Merriam-Webster, dead, dead, function, adjective, etymology, Middle English deed from Old English, Kinton Norris to die, number one, without life, unable to respond, incapable of being stirred. So this is spiritually speaking. Go ahead. Brian was looking too comfortable over there, so I had to wake him up. (laughs) If we can choose God, then we can unchoose God, right? In other words, if it's our choice rather than his. That that goes to, boy, you know, that that goes to God choosing us, electing us. I think, no. No, I, that's my point is from an Arminian perspective. I'm it's man, yes. man-based philosophy. Man-made philosophy, choose. yes. That's correct. Yes. I, thank you for clarifying that. Number two, this is where the whole crux of the issue lies. What is man capable of? Is he 99% gone? Can he still open his mouth when the spoon of medicine is put to his lips? Is he gasping or, at the, as the scripture said, is he dead? How you answer this question is critical to your understanding of election. Are there any questions about this concept before we go on? Some might say, well, I'm maybe not spiritually so dead. 
or just how dead am I? And this is the part that I realize I'm just a wretched, wretched sinner that can no more choose God than anything else that I can make choices about, but that God really does choose me and makes me then alive. Okay, good. I, I, I just I okay. was just thinking Brian? something that yeah. for, for a long time I always thought like I know where I was before I was saved and then I asked myself in dealing with this topic why would God choose somebody like me okay and but when you look back even the disciples the 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 people that Jesus chose to be his disciples they were uh, <coughs> Well, MacArthur has a book called Ordinary Men, but a lot of them were, when you get to Paul, I mean, here's a guy, why would Jesus choose Paul? Well, we don't know that. We don't know why, okay? And, and I say the same thing about myself. Now, it's not that we're any better than people that aren't chosen. We just don't know, we just don't know why God's, we don't know God's ways, and we don't know why he would choose me over somebody else who maybe on the outside years and years ago before I was saved appeared on the outside to maybe be a lot better of a moral type person and wasn't doing the, you know, leading the sinful life like I was, and then all of a sudden I'm the one that's saved. We, I asked myself that question, we don't know. That's a great comment, Brian. Thank you so much for sharing that. And you're right, we don't. That's just a great comment. Makes me think of the of the song. Hang on a second. Um, I'm just a sinner saved by grace. Skip and I have sung that together sometimes. And, you know, I forget the line now, but it says, how, how could God basically choose me in, in that? in that song, in that reference, it's like, it brings tears to my eyes to think that why would God choose a wretched sinner like, like myself? I thought you were going to say like me. Like me. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> he was. <laughs> <laughs> Norm, you had a comment? Yeah, the, the whole concept about being dead and not being able to contribute something goes so contrary to the American way of thinking. You know, we have American ingenuity. We can do it. We can, we can do all these things, and to have to admit, no, we're dead. It just it doesn't go down easy for us. You're, you're right. It, it just gives that much more glory to God for choosing us. And that's, I'm excited to get to the end of this because... Well, it's exciting. Hang in there with me. There are some passages that talk about this a little bit. Uh, In the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy, it talks about the choosing of Israel. And God said he didn't choose them because they were the most of all people. They were the least. They didn't have anything going for them. And then we see in 1 Corinthians 1.26, the topic comes up again. Brothers... Consider your calling. Not many are wise from a human perspective, not many powerful, and not many of noble birth. Instead, God has chosen what is foolish in the world to shame the wise, and what is weak in the world to shame the strong. 
God has chosen what is insignificant and despised, what is viewed as nothing. So if we can glean anything from the fact that we became Christians is that we had nothing going for us. <laughs> Amen. It is so true. That is so true. And it just glorifies God that much more. Thanks, Bob, for sharing that. This is such good, good stuff, and you're a great, great audience to share this with. Thanks for being kind with me. Number three, every man arrives in this world dead on arrival, DOA. He exhibits the characteristics of depravity. He is not 100% depraved in all areas of his, of his life, but every area, to some degree, is affected by his depraved condition. Resurrection of Lazarus was not a joint effort between Christ and Lazarus, right? God didn't say, okay, you know, Lazarus, raise yourself up and meet me halfway. God rose Lazarus from the dead. Lazarus came forth because he, were, he was raised, not in order to be raised. Man's inability means he is incapable of seeking God on his own. Romans 3.11, there is none who seeks for God. You know, I see a verse like this in the Arminius, just sort of put a spin on it in, in the, you know, 2014 vernacular. There's a lot of that going on in our world today, spinning the real truth to make it more palatable, more swallowable, um, putting a, a slant that may not be accurate or may not be true. But when I look at a, a word like this, there is none who seeks for God. That's pretty clear. If, you know, we talked about this. If you have a Bible and you believe what's in the Bible, it's just what you believe about the Bible that's true. The seeker-sensitive concept is inaccurate for this reason. In a lot of churches, you've heard the term, oh, we're a seeker-sensitive church. Or the, the leadership is trying to be seeker-sensitive. It doesn't work. Not on the basis of this principle. There's none who seeks for God. God may call some unbelievers to a church to go investigate, but that's God enlightening that person's heart, whether they're a wretched, you know, horrible, horrible sinner, which they are before they are believers, but uh, they may have come drag, you know, kicking and and, and screaming to that church, but it's not because uh, they were seeking necessarily um, God. God was already seeking them. God already appointed them maybe to come kicking and screaming to that place where, wherever it was, a church or a, or a backyard someplace, Yeah, if, please repeat. Seeker-sensitive almost implies pride. Yeah, seeker-sensitive implies pride. Yeah, absolutely. So there, you're trying to do it again. Go ahead, Brian. Years ago, there was a Barnapole on um, people that would go forward and receive Christ. 
yes. uh, in a false conversion sort of way. Uh, these people were tracked and then they were uh, uh, interviewed years after their so-called conversion and the percentage was astronomical of the amount of people that still had anything to do with the church. Yeah, I've, I've read studies like that. I've read studies and heard studies like that myself. A lot of the big crusade things where they do detailed follow-up, it seems a lot produce those kind of results. Nancy had a comment behind you. Um, there are a number of verses where we are commanded to seek God, but that must only hold true after he has sought us. Or seek him while he may be found, and there's yep. just a number of verses like that. Yep, exactly. God commands what's right, no matter what. Okay, so when God commands all people everywhere to repent, it doesn't imply that they all will. And when God commands all people everywhere to seek him, which they ought to do, God can command nothing less than what's in keeping with his moral character. Amen. Okay, so that God commands to seek doesn't mean the people have the ability to do so. God commands us to be perfect. We don't have the ability to do it, but can God command something less? Okay, otherwise we fall into the trap of fitty, but that's a topic for another day. Would that kind of be the same as when God commands us to all repent? Yeah, and it says that in Acts 17, where Paul's preaching to the Athenian philosophers, that God's not going to overlook ignorance. He's furnished proof to all men through a man whom he raised from the dead, Jesus Christ. Therefore, he's commanding all everywhere to repent. And so then... The critic will say, well, if God commands all to repent, then he should bring spiritual life to everybody. But we're telling God what he has to do. But God uses means. Us hearing with our external ears the command to repent will cause some to hear the inner call and actually repent. Going back to the seekers... Uh, a lot of them came not seeking God, but seeking a better marriage, seeking uh, help for their children, seeking all sorts of things. Yep. And when those things didn't turn out, or they came seeking health, those things didn't turn out. That's why the seeker-sensitive churches really failed their people because they tried to deal with all of that. And I think that goes back to what Peter was saying about the pride you uh, are humiliated if your marriage doesn't work, if your children turn out wrong. Um, and so you come thinking, you know, the church will, will fix that. You're seeking that and not God. And thankfully, God does seek us. That's a great comment, Beth. Thank, thank you. Thank you so much. man is left alone in this state, he will get what he deserves, justice. He will experience the wrath and condemnation of God. He is helpless to change his spiritual condition. 
He cannot save himself. Some verses on the depravity of man. Just read through them. All have sinned, Romans 3.23. All are dead. Ephesians 2.1. No one seeks God, Romans 3.11b. No one understands the truth of God, Romans 3.11a. He is darkened in his understanding, Ephesians 4.18. He does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them. 1 Corinthians 2.14 No one is righteous. Ouch. Romans 3.10 All have turned aside. Romans 3.12a All have become useless. Romans 3.12b all are futile in their minds. Ephesians 4:17. No one does good. Romans 3:12. His throat is an open grave. Romans 3:13. His heart is hard. Ephesians 4:18. He is deceptive. He is calloused. Ephesians 4.19 His mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Romans 3.16 His feet are swift to shed blood. Romans 3.15 His path is filled with destruction and misery. Romans 3.16 He is alienated from the life of God. Ephesians 4.18. He practices every kind of impurity and greediness. Ephesians 4.19. He knows nothing of peace. Romans 3.17. He is void of the Spirit. Boy, what a list. Doesn't paint a very good picture for the human character, does it? But again, I wanted you to see the... uh, what the scriptures say about the human character of man. It's not a pretty thing. Man tries to do good, but there's no one that does good, it says. So that's the picture of, of where we're at. <clears throat> this is man's Ability or inability to sin. You see on the graph, pre-fall, man is able to sin, able to not sin. He has, he has these choices, Adam and Eve. Post-fall, he's able to sin, but after the fall, he's unable to not sin. So there's some that say they can now be so glorified, so perfected that they're not going to worry about sinning anymore. They're, they're working to be perfect. No. They're unable to not sin in the, in the post-fall condition. The reborn men are able to sin, but they're also able to not sin. That's where we're at. We are able to not sin. 
a glorified man, able to not sin, unable to sin. Yay. <laughs> unable to not sin. That's what we're heading for. Just another graph to, to show about sin. We've got some time left, probably not on your handouts, but we can do that later. Yeah, we got a comment. Getting back to the uh, depravity of man and all of the things the Bible brings out about man, and but yet we see in society uh, repeatedly we hear man is basically good. The problem is he just needs a little more education, yeah. and then yeah. we can resolve solve these problems. Yeah, we're going to fix it, aren't we? Yeah, we're going to try yeah. really hard and make us make us all better. We're pulling ourselves up by our own bootstraps. Don't more get money, clean air. yep more money, more clean air, every, everything. Everything. Yeah, that was the. I just think it's important to really be aware that this is how, this is from God's perspective. We see each other, you know, as good because we, um, you know, we, we see goodness in each other, I should say. But, but God's standard is so different than the human standard is for, quote, goodness or defining what goodness is and yep. being a good person. And it's just so important to remember that it's really God's standard, not the human standard that we're trying to achieve when we talk about goodness. Thanks for making that clear, Christy. That's, that's perfect. Well said. The comment behind you. Mine was just kind of getting back to the depravity part and choosing. And I think I know that we've heard it here before, but in this conversation um, and does, you know, election versus choosing. But the people would ask then, well, then why witness if God has already elected, you know. And I wanted to add, too, like in Brian's comment with Paul, you know, that, you know, Paul was much older when he was saved. And, of course, everybody... Um, the church, they were still afraid of him. They thought, how can this man be saved? He was, you know, killing us before. And it's easy for us to want to look around and think, oh, they're saved and they're saved and they're saved. But right now we're hidden in Christ and, and the wheat is with the tares. And we don't, you know, when Christ returns, then the sheep and the goats will be separated. Exactly. But anyway, it, if you can make a comment just so it's in this conversation about why should we go ahead and witness then if God is already elected? That's a great question. We'll, we'll come to that down the line. We'll talk more about it as we come up. But basically, God commands us to. Right. In one short sentence, we're, we're commanded to share. And God uses us to get his word out. That's the, the answer in, in short to that principle. But we'll, we'll look at that a little bit more in the future. Steve, I was just wondering if, okay, how to best answer this question, because I've gotten it before, but if, if God chooses whom he will to be saved, does then he, has he created 
people for destruction? Is it, is it, I mean, what's the best way to answer that, or is it answerable? Is that one of those mysteries that we won't know to, uh, exactly how to answer that question? Yeah, God, God wants all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. One passage says, but then also some are chosen and some are not. So did he, did he create people for destruction? Yes, yes. I would say he did. Bob has a comment. Or unless well, you want there was one other thing. I just, yeah, um, I, I've listened to a series by MacArthur on doctrines of grace, and he, he, what you're saying coincides with what he says pretty much. But there was one, uh, Psalm 110, verse 3, where he says, um, or the psalmist says, your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power. And I, MacArthur used that in one of his messages on the doctrines of election about how God will make, you know, there's been that argument of people saying that, oh, you know, God's going to take me kicking and screaming into the kingdom, you know. Uh, no, he's going to give us a willing heart. Yeah. And I, I just love that. Um, I know there's different versions, uh, different ways that it's, um, that that verse comes through, but uh, the fact that he will give us a willing heart in the day of his power, and that that's to right. me is the day of salvation when it occurs that's, in each that's individual. Exactly right. So, yep. Thank you. For those of us who do believe in the doctrines of grace and the solos of the Reformation and the doctrine of election, one thing we need to be sure about is that we don't compromise on the universal call. God is calling all men everywhere to repent. Okay, so here we earlier we we're talking about seeking. God commands everyone to seek Him. If we don't, we're morally culpable for not doing so. And here it says Isaiah fifty-five. I'm going to start with verse six. There are many other passages. I keep finding more passages to preach universal call. I love That's that. That's okay. I thought of a different one Sunday. I use it. Um, 2 Corinthians 5.15. But here, uh, uh, Isaiah 55, 6. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on to him while he is near. What does that mean? Does God kind of come and go? And No. There's a time limitation about when we're going to be able to respond to the gospel. There's coming a day where it's too late. Exactly. Okay? So this, that's now. That's right now. Seek the Lord while he's near. Now. Verse 7. Let the wicked one abandon his way and the sinful one his thoughts, and let him return to the Lord so that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will freely forgive. God yeah. says himself, I take no pleasure in the death of anyone who dies, therefore repent and live. That's in Ezekiel 18. And... Uh, to avoid hyper-Calvinism, if I can use that term, what we need is the universal call. And who responds to it? We don't know who the elect are. Or like Eric likes to say, they don't come with an E on their forehead. <laughs> and so we preach that to our children, our, our relatives, people in other religions, people we work with. 
people in the congregation on Sunday morning, whoever may invite somebody. There's nothing disingenuous. Now, I've debated Armenians, both publicly and privately. And they'll say, no, you can't say that. Well, what do you mean I can't say it? It's right here in the Bible. Oh, no, you don't get to. Why don't I get to? Well, because you only believe the elect are going to be saved, so how can you call everybody to repent? No, I believe the whole counsel of God, including the call for everyone to repent. And God uses means. Don't, get, don't forget that. God uses means. He uses the foolishness, quote-unquote, ironically, of the message preached to save those who will believe. There's nothing to, for us to be doing from the pulpit or in our private witnessing but preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ because he's chosen that to save those who will believe. And I, you can't get much more, well, Paul was maybe more extreme, but I was an extreme blasphemer and hostile as could be the night before I got saved, the next afternoon I was a Christian. I went back to work. Now I'm serving Christ who I cursed the night before. Shows you that he's merciful. Amen. Yeah, what happened was after some of these confessions that Steve mentioned earlier, okay, going back actually 100 years before that, back to Luther, the, this Jacob Arminius and these remonstrants determined that the Reformed doctrines were in error. And particularly, they defined the Reformed doctrines as tulip. Okay, tulip isn't found in Luther and it's not found in Calvin. It was created by critics for their acrostic to read to reject it, which they rejected point by point by point by point. So the five points of the Arminians, each one, (coughs) excuse me, was a rejection of this tulip acrostic that came up, okay? And I have gotten more nasty emails and phone calls from people, you're a tulip Calvinist. And somebody was so vicious about it, I finally said to her, okay, I've got 300 messages online. You find the one where I preach Tulip. Well, uh, no, Tulip is Arminian's way of making fun of Calvinists. Okay, T, total depravity. Well, see, you could take that to mean that every human being is just as evil as anybody could possibly be, so Charles Manson is just your average human. But that's not the doctrine, as Steve was saying earlier. We're not saying that everybody in all of their faculties is as depraved as anybody could imaginably be. It's just that the whole person has fallen in all faculties. Unconditional election. That's the only one you need, is the you. So eliminate all this other stuff. Let's debate that. Is election conditional or unconditional? In other words, did God look and see me something worth electing? 
I had something going for me that everybody else didn't, a little more noble, making better choices. I have the raw material to be a better Christian. God saw something in me, and that was the condition that was met. Even I made a choice for God. And so there is the debate. When I've had public debates with Armenians, that's where I go. They want to make a straw man, God, limited atonement, meaning Christ just couldn't quite die for as many as he wanted to. It didn't really work right, uh, and so on. No, you tell me what it is that God sees that makes us electable. Okay, there's your debate right there. You don't need to go any further. And if they say, well, we chose God, then then it's, it's not, that's your Arminian right there. Bob, Peter. Yeah, real quick, you were, you were talking about uh, the, the window of opportunity uh, on the universal call. Well, God says that, I mean, he'll harden people's hearts. He'll, he'll take that opportunity away by hardening their heart. Well, yeah, hardening, by the way, the, the judgment of reprobation, isn't God taking a soft, compliant, willing person who really wants to serve God and making them hard? Hardening or reprobation is simply God removing something. Okay? Because apart from God's grace, we're all hard. He's just got to let us be who we are. Bob, I just wanted to add in there that we will be talking more about the external and the internal call of God, the universal call about that. So we're coming to that with some more scriptures. So thanks for the precursor on that. Preview. Preview. Steve, in kind of response to uh, Dan's question uh, earlier, you can refer to Romans 14, really, through 24 to kind of answer Romans nine fourteen through 24, and I can read some of it, but it says, What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. So then, it is not of him who wills, nor him who runs. There's, that's a shot over the bow of the Arminian but God who shows mercy. For the scripture says to the Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I may show my power in you, and my name may be declared in all of the earth. Therefore he has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills he hardens. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who has resisted his will? But indeed, O man, Who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, Why have you made me like this? Obviously, this is a man-made question. Does not the potter have the power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? What if God, wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known, Endured with much long suffering, there's a time aspect, the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, 
and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy which he had prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. Those are powerful words. Thank you for the summation. That's a great place to, to close on tonight, that God is the one that does the choosing. We looked at that earlier in Romans 9. So thank you, Peter, for that great summation. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, once again, we just stand in awe of your selecting us, of, uh, of how <laughs> wretched we were, that no one does good. Our throat is an open grave. Our heart is hard. Or we're, de- we, we're deceptive, Father. You know all that about us before you created us, and yet you chose us. Lord, we're just... Uh, We bow before you in thanks and glory and give you all the praise. In Jesus' name, amen.